Well, good morning. As uh, we get to know each other, and as we spend time together, we learn things about people. And there's, there's some weird things about me. I, I'm not a, the type of person who gets really caught up and really um, in awe of celebrities and sports athletes, people that are, you know, on the TV all the time. It's, it's, it's important, and I know it's something we enjoy, but um, I'm always just kind of intrigued by those people. I like to find out what it's, what's it like to live a life like that. But there's something different and there's something a little bit more unique about someone who was the president of our country. And so this week we've been um, celebrating and mourning and just reflecting back, regardless of our views politically, we've looked back and just kind of looked at the life of our 41st president. And like many of you, I began to reflect back on any memory that I might have that involved him. And it takes me back to when I was a student at Texas A&M several years ago for George Bush's 80th birthday, he decided he wanted to skydive. And so my roommate and I decided we were going to watch this. It was supposed to be some big, huge event. And both of us being small town guys, we show up on the day of the event. And I was immediately awed and wowed by the size of the crowd. I mean, it was insane how many thousands of people had come out to watch this guy jump out of an airplane. And not just the crowd, but the police presence, the Secret Service, the fact that George Bush rolled in on a train. That's obviously something that was important to him. Uh, But it was this crazy, insane bizarre, exciting day. And so we're enjoying all this. We're soaking it all in. And then we finally get to the point where he goes up in the air and he can see the airplane way up there. And then you see him jump and he comes down quickly with the parachute and with his instructor and they land. And to be honest with you, the landing was a little bit of a rough landing. I I watched it. It was really the first time I'd ever watched a live skydiver um, make it down to the earth. And I was kind of like, man, that was was a little rough. You know, that's the president of the United States. And you just kind of let him hit the ground at a pretty high rate of speed. speed. But, But it all worked. And we got to the end of that. And immediately after that, my roommate hits me on the shoulder and he goes, bro, let's do it. Let's go skydiving. And I'm like, you can go eat rocks. Like, I'm not jumping out of a perfectly good airplane that's intended to safely return me back to the earth. Why in the world would you want to jump out of an airplane? I'm like, no, bro, I'm good. And he goes, come on, dude. He's like, it's not even that big of a deal. He goes, the first time you go, you're going to be strapped to the back of somebody. And I said, oh, cool, because that's normal. I mean, anytime you do something for the first time, it's like, oh, hey, I need to strap to you. You know, I'm going to learn how to swim. Can I just strap onto you while we learn how to swim together? Your mom doesn't send you out with your friends and say, hey, make sure you're strapped to a buddy tonight as you go out and have fun. That's just not what we do. I mean, what difference is that going to make when you're falling at a high rate of speed from an insane altitude? You're going to go from being somewhat of a grease spot to just a little bit bigger grease spot as you hit the ground. Like, I, I just, I just, I don't get that. Why would you do that? And I'm asking, I'm asking some of you that question this morning, because some of you, you have done that. You have jumped out of a perfectly good airplane with a large, oversized napkin and some rope tied to your back. And I just don't understand it. Other than maybe drug use, I don't know why you would do that. Now, some of you, I give you a pass. Because you've been in the military, you decided that that was something you wanted to do to help protect our freedom and to serve our country, and that was part of the requirement. And so I give you a pass, but the rest of you, I'm a little concerned. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're like, hey, has he seen the video of one of our pastors, Laura, jumping out of a plane? And the answer is yes, I've seen the video. And I'm concerned. And I'm praying deeply for her. But why would you do that? Why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? The reason is, is because you have seen and you have heard enough to give you confidence that that parachute is going to safely return you to the ground. And for some of you, you've done it multiple times, and every time you do it, your confidence grows. You believe more and more in that parachute on your back to 
you get, when you get to the point, you actually will do it all by yourself. You're not worried about being strapped to somebody else. But if you got to the top of the, the sky and you're about to jump and the instructor says, hey, four out of six have made it. May the odds be ever in your favor. Like nobody's jumping in that moment. And with that in mind, I want us to dive back into this I Am series in week five and begin to understand what this all means for us. Because up to this point, we've been looking at the first three chapters of Ephesians. And it's interesting, you maybe have picked up on this, but as we go through the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been reminding us, he's been helping us remember. He wants us to understand. He's not telling us to do anything. For three chapters, he doesn't say, hey, go do this, and then do this, and then you'll receive God's promises, you'll receive God's blessings. He just talks about how we've been blessed in Jesus. There's an understanding and a realization he wants us to get to, and I believe the reason is, is because when we know something, then we can do something about it. What we understand begins to dictate the direction that our life goes. We begin to live on purpose. And it forces us to ask the question, what is purpose? Purpose is simply this, it's a response. Purpose is just how we respond to what we know. And so I want you to think through this statement, I want this to be a statement that you take home with you this morning, but it's this, it's the response to what we know that reveals what we believe. It's the response to what I know that reveals to you and to those around me what I actually believe. We talk a lot about what we believe, but to just talk about what we believe and have nothing happen as a result of what we believe, then we have to go back and realize maybe it's not really what we believe. Because if we believe something based on the information and the experience we have, our life is a natural response to that. So let's go backwards this morning and let's go back to Ephesians chapter one. I wanna look at a prayer that Paul begins to pray for the church at Ephesus. Paul is the author of the book of Ephesians and he's writing this letter to a group of Jesus followers who have just begun to understand what does it look like to follow Jesus? What is the truth that I need to know in this relationship that I have with God? And he just finished this massive run-on sentence to explain to us the love that God has for us that motivated him to chase after us with his son, Jesus. So he just finished explaining all that, and then he goes into this prayer. And so let's pick up there and see what it says. In verse 15, it says this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you have responded to Jesus at some level because of what you've heard, because of what you've begun to understand about God, his love for you, and his son Jesus who gave his life for you. You've responded to that. You've said, you know what, I'll give my life to that. And he's celebrating that, but he's also celebrating the fact that people haven't just given their life to Jesus, but they're beginning to love each other. And let's just be real, that's something to be thankful for, because in a room this size, we're not all the same. In fact, we're all very different, but yet these people are beginning to love each other. It's supernatural, and Paul is thankful for that, and so he starts his prayer off by being thankful for this. And he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. And then I wanna pause right there because it's important to understand exactly what he's talking about in these first couple verses. What Paul is praying, he's praying that the eyes of our hearts would be open to understand something. He says, I pray that you would have the spirit of wisdom. What does that mean? He's praying that we would have insight, that we would have understanding to the why behind what we have in Jesus. 
He says that there would be a revelation. What he's saying is he's, I'm praying that all of a sudden what you've never been able to see, what's always been in the darkness would come to life, that you would now have light in your life to be able to recognize what you have in Jesus. You would have insight, understanding, and the ability to see what we've never seen before. But there's a reason for it. He says so that we would know, so that we would know Jesus, that we would have knowledge of him. Now it's important to understand because we can miss the significance of what he's talking about when we don't understand the original text. In the original text, there's two words in the original Greek that would translate in English to the word know. The first one is oida. And the word oida is the understanding of simple facts, information. Let me give you some examples. I know what my birthday is. I would tell you what it is, but then you would feel obligated to send me gifts, and I don't want that because that would just be awkward. So we'll just leave that what it is. But you remember your birthday. It's information that's important to you. I also know that the city of Houston has never experienced a championship football team, and that's painful. We could all probably think about all the numerous occasions that the football franchise in our city has let us down. That's information. It's facts that we know. But the information that Paul is talking about is different. He's praying praying that we would know, and the word is gnosko, and this is different. This is a knowledge that comes from experience. As we begin to experience something, we begin to have a deeper understanding of what it is and what it means for our lives. It's the difference between knowing that you're a dad and really knowing and experiencing being a dad. I remember my first kid was born. Braden was born, and going through the process, it was just kind of a a crazy, overwhelming day, a long day, especially for me. Not, Not really for me. It was a terrible day for my wife. And I'll never forget... People have been prepping me for this day, saying, Wes, it's going to be this crazy day. You're going to be overwhelmed in this moment. To be a dad is a cool thing and all this. And I was like, okay, this is cool. I got to prep myself. This is going to be a good day. And I remember when they showed me my son for the very first time, and I looked at him, and he had really, really dark, curly hair. And I said, uh-oh. Because <laughs> that's, that's not what I envisioned that moment to look like. And I remember the nurse who was a personal friend of mine, she said, hey, um, come over here with me and and let's get him cleaned up. And I'll be honest with you, in that moment, I didn't feel anything. I was kind of like, I started to kind of become concerned because in that moment I looked at him and I was like, man, he's kind of (laughs) ugly. He looks like he's been squished together for a really long time. He's got some nasty, like, slimy stuff all over him. And I was like, man, this is kind of weird. And for the first several hours, I was just kind of almost um, just insecure about what, I felt in that moment because I didn't feel what everybody told me I was going to feel. But as the hours went on and as the days went on, as I began to experience my kid, as I began to feed him, as I began to change his diapers, as I began to hear him cry and, and just spend time with him, the knowledge of being a dad was experienced. And that's the knowledge that Paul is talking about in this prayer this morning. He's saying that when we have spiritual sights, when the eyes of our hearts have been enlightened, What he's saying is the knowledge, the truth that we have about God becomes alive in us, that God opens the eyes of our hearts. And it's interesting to think about this. Why? Because when we experience him, we know him. And when I know who Jesus is and who Jesus wants to be for me, it impacts my life and I begin to respond naturally to what I know, to what I've experienced, to what I understand about Jesus, and I would say that this is probably the greatest prayer that we could pray for ourselves and for our church, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to know Jesus, to understand Jesus, to experience Jesus, because if we're honest this morning, 
some of us might be sitting here more out of obligation than celebration. Some of you have gotten into this funk, and I know this because I've, there's been seasons in my life, even as a pastor, as a student pastor, where I've gotten into a season where it just kind of somewhat becomes a little bit of a boredom. The passion doesn't seem as real. It's like I'm starting to go through the motions, the, the drive to continue to stay in God's word, to read God's word, to memorize scripture, to talk about the relationship I have with Jesus just kind of begins to go away. Or maybe we fall, find ourselves in a season, especially at Christmas time, it's like all this is just kind of brought to the surface where we're discouraged, we're sad because life hasn't been what exactly the way we hoped it would be and we've experienced some difficult times and Christmas time just seems to remind us of that. And so we get to this place and we begin to forget who Jesus is. And Paul is saying, I'm praying that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened to know Jesus. I believe this is our greatest need this morning. It's our greatest need individually, but it's also our greatest need as a church, and as we begin to understand this, as God begins to open the eyes of our hearts, because only he can do it, something begins to happen, and Paul begins to progress through this prayer, and as we read this prayer, we begin to understand exactly what it is, we begin to understand what we begin to know as he opens the eyes of our hearts. The first thing is this, I know my future. As I begin to see, as I begin to know and understand who Jesus is and who Jesus is for me, I know my future. Look what he says as he continues on. It says, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Paul begins to talk about a hope. Quickly, he just mentions this. Now, this word hope is a little bit um, different than what we might think it is. It's not just a, I hope this happens, or I hope so. The biblical definition of hope is this confident expectation. I know what is going to happen. And because I know what is going to happen, my expectations begin to point towards that. My life becomes a response to what I know is going to happen. It's the difference in being someone who's, you know, wishful that you find the someone and the hope you have to find that special somebody. We go to high school and middle school camp every single summer and many students get on that bus hopeful that they'll find that summer camp crush. But it's different when you're actually engaged to that special someone. It impacts your life differently because there's a different kind of hope. There's a different type of anticipation, expectation for what is to come. It begins to reshape your life. No longer are you thinking just about yourself. Dudes, we have to start thinking. She's gonna want 25 different pillows on the bed because that's what looks good. You care about your one, she wants 25. It changes us, it begins to reshape our minds. And Paul is trying to help us recognize this because it begins to affect the response of our life. When my wife and I were dating, there was a period of time where we were in a long-distance relationship. I was still in College Station. She had moved up to Fort Worth to begin uh, her master's degree at a conservative Christian seminary. Now, a single, young, attractive female stepping foot on a conservative Christian seminary campus is noticed, if you know what I'm saying. The guy-to-girl ratio wasn't ideally in my favor as my girlfriend moved to Fort Worth. And so I had to do something in that moment. When I would go visit her, I would make promises to her and I would say, hey, listen, Brandy, we're gonna see each other next weekend. I'll be back next week. I'll be back in two weeks. Why did I do that? Because I wanted her to have confidence that I was going to return because I knew all those other scrubs were gonna be coming and checking her out and they were gonna be asking her to study. They were gonna be asking her to spend time with them and I wanted her to have a confident expectation of my return. Now she had a choice to respond in that moment. And why did she respond the way that she responded? 
because she knew me. She trusted me. She understood me, and she understood the relationship and the love that I felt for her. And so her life was a response to the hope that I was going to return. And listen, I quickly got there, and I quickly put a ring on it. <laughs> I'm not taking any chances. This is, the, this is the hope. This is the expectation. And the reason is because as we go through life, there are times where we find ourselves in situations, in cycles, where sometimes temptation becomes debilitating. And Paul knows that when we recognize the hope we have, what is this hope? It's the summation of all things in Jesus, that Jesus wins in the end. And when I'm connected to the one that wins in the end, I can't lose regardless of my situations. So when that temptation begins to show up in my life, it no longer controls me because I recognize where my future lies. And I can stand with courage in the face of temptation. All of a sudden, it begins to impact the decisions that I make. My life becomes a response to this incredible, confident hope that I have in Jesus. As I understand who Jesus is and who he is for me, I begin to know my future and it brings hope in my life. The second thing Paul continues on to is he says this idea that we know our worth. I know my worth. As I understand and the eyes of my hearts are open to who he is, I know my worth. Look what it says. It says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Inheritance. Well, first of all, we've got to ask, what is an inheritance? An inheritance is an incredibly valuable thing that you have that has been passed down to you from a previous generation. And I don't know about you, but anything that's been passed down to me, if I think about my house ever burning down, assuming that my kids and my wife are safe, the next thing that I'm going to go after is that item that has been passed down to me from a previous generation. It holds significance. It holds weight. It's valuable to me. And so I'm going to do everything I can to rescue that, to hold on to that, to never let that thing go. And so it's talking about this inheritance, something valuable. But whose inheritance is it talking about? Not my inheritance, not your inheritance, but God's inheritance. God's most valuable possession. What is it? It says the saints. What does that mean? That means those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who have a relationship with Jesus. You are the inheritance. You are the most prized possession of God the Father. We begin to understand our worth, and Paul knows that as I pray that you recognize you are God's greatest treasure, it will have an impact in your life. Your life will become a natural response to what you understand. Now, some of you here this morning, you are stressed out. It's Christmas time, and you have one or two people in your life who have everything. But you, out of obligation, have to buy them a Christmas present, and you are stressed out to the point, you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. What in the world am I going to get him? He has it all. What in the world am I going to get her? She has everything. I, I don't know what to get them. I mean, imagine if you had to get Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. I mean, he's got his own space, space rocket launch pad in West Texas. He could own a country if he wanted to. He, he's, he's got everything. What in the world do you get him for Christmas? It's like, hey, Jeff, um, man, I got you a TV. He's like, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. I'll let my dog put it up in his doghouse. Like, what, what, do you, what do you get this guy? Well, consider God. God has everything. He has the ability to create anything. But there was one thing he didn't have. But he did everything necessary so that he could have that. But there's a decision you and I have to make when we realize that he sent Jesus to give his life so that we could have that relationship with him, so that we could be his most prized possession. As we see that, we understand that, it begins to impact our worth. Because you see, everything we say or do is oftentimes driven by our insecurity that we matter. 
I see this when students often, I see um, students who begin to um, lower standards or begin to step into a certain direction in their life, not because that's ultimately what they want, but what they think is as they step in that direction, they begin to lower their standards to maybe date him or to date her, they feel like maybe their life will carry more weight, that their life will matter a little bit more, that they'll have more value and worth in the lives of the people around them. And eventually they find themselves in a place where they are so far down this road, they begin to think, how in the world did I get here? This is never what I wanted my life to look like. And the result, the reason, the response of all those decisions was simply the idea that my life doesn't matter. We can wear ourselves out, guys, especially trying to make someone else proud, to try to show everybody that I am good at what I do. And sometimes it's to prove a father wrong, it's to prove an older brother or an older sibling wrong, and we continually try to elevate ourselves because we have this yearning in our life to know that we matter and that our life carries weight. And Paul knows that the more we know Jesus, the more we experience and understand him, then the more confident we can walk in how valuable we are. The question is solved. But God has to open the eyes of our hearts in order for this to happen. Maybe you grew up in a home and that wasn't the reality for you. You feel like you had to fight to have any worth. There's a God who loves you. There's a God who believes you are worth everything, even the life of his son. And he wants to flip the script of your life because you've been chasing after so many things to try to find weight, to try to find glory, to try to find what matters in your life so that your life will matter. And God's saying, hey, just just let me open the eyes of your heart to see the worth that you have in my eyes. And when you do that, your life begins to flip. You begin to walk with a different confidence, with a different security. As we continue to understand who Jesus is, Paul continues on in his prayer, and he's praying that we would see more and more and more. The next thing that I believe begins to happen as the eyes of our hearts are open to who Jesus is, is we know his power. Look what it says in verse 19. It says, in his incomparably great power for us, who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. What Paul is saying is as we begin to know and understand who Jesus is, we begin to realize and recognize that his power is accessible to us. But it's interesting because he describes his power in a very specific way. I mean, think about God. He can create anything, and he did create everything. There's over 300 billion stars in our galaxy the average star has enough energy to power one trillion atom bombs every single second. You and I can agree, regardless of how knowledgeable we are in science, that that's a lot of power. I mean, that's insane. And he could have said the power that was on display in the creation of the world or in the creation of the universe. But it's not, he actually talks about something different. He talks about the power that was displayed when God raised Christ from the dead. He's talking about the power that made the ability for Jesus to walk out of the grave flawless possible. Why does that matter? Because he doesn't want us just to know that God is able to create something good from nothing. He wants us to see that God can take something that's broken, something that's busted, something that's not good, and he can turn it for good. And that's important for you and I to know this morning. Because every single one of us have elements in our lives that have been touched by the decay of life, the decay of brokenness and dysfunction that we experience in this broken, dying world. 
I mean, think about some of the destructive emotions that you experience and they seem to just continue to cycle themselves through your life. There's jealousy that just rages out of control sometimes. You feel the need to always be in control and so it just, it leads your life and it leads the relationships you're in and sometimes breaks up the relationships you're in. There's this destructiveness that just seems to be part of who you are. Or maybe you begin to reflect back on just your family dynamics and your family DNA and the genetics that you've been born with. And you begin to look back and you think, man, God has great plans for us, but I'm not sure how great his plans are for me because as I look back over the patterns in my family history, it's not good. So how in the world is it gonna change for me? Or maybe there's an addiction, there's a substance, there's an activity, there's a tendency in your life that you are paranoid about. There's a yearning deep inside of you and you've been praying that God would take it away for years and you live in a constant fear that one day it's gonna rise to the surface and you're gonna break every promise that you've ever made to yourself and to those around you and your life is just going to unravel. I believe that's the mindset Paul is praying into. He's praying that we would see God in a way that we would recognize the power that raised Christ from the dead and help us understand that all of those things that we allow to have power over us in our minds and in our life have no power over us. The power that raised Jesus from the grave has power over everything that we think has power over us. And he wants our eyes to see that. He wants our lives to become a response to that because when that happens, it gives power to stand in the face of temptation. It gives power to have self-control. It gives you power to stand in situations where maybe you cowered in the past and you just kind of stepped back and said, you know what, I'm just gonna kind of blend in. I'm gonna be a chameleon in this area of my life. Paul believes that we begin to see this power and it begins to change us. The last thing that begins to happen is we know who Jesus is and we experience who he is is we realize that I am purposed. I am purposed. There's a response, a natural progression in my life that happens when I have the eyes of my heart open to see who Jesus is. Look how he finishes off this prayer. He's talked about the, the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and it says, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You see this progression that's taking place? Paul is praying that our eyes would be open, that we'd be able to see these things and our life become a response. And as he prays through this prayer, as this progression begins to move, he begins to talk about something bigger than just you and I on a personal level. You see, he talks about the power that's available to us personally. There's personal gain that's available to us as we know the power of Jesus. But then he begins to point to the purpose of that power, not just being for you and me personally, but it's the power that he is leading his church with. And he begins to use this imagery of the, the head and the body. And he begins to talk about Jesus being the head of the body. Well, you and I can't be the body by ourselves. What he's talking about, he's saying Jesus is the head. And we are the body, a group of believers who love each other and who love God and who are moving in a specific direction together with God's power going before us, going ahead of us, accomplishing what he wants to accomplish through his church, not his buildings, but through his church, the people that gather together, potentially in a building, to do the work that he wants to do in the church. You realize what Paul is helping us realize this morning is the work that God wants to do in this world 
he wants to do through his church. He's made his power accessible to people who love him and are walking arm in arm with other people who love him and love each other, and it makes an incredible difference. If you think back to the church at Ephesus, you begin to read and you begin to study the history of the church. And these people who um, most scholars believe, most church historians believe, when Paul wrote this letter, he was writing to a very small group of people. And when Paul would actually visit there a few years later, he would come to find out there were only about 12 Jesus followers in a city of 200 to 300,000. And it was a city overwhelmed with darkness, overwhelmed with dysfunction, overwhelmed with hurt and pain. Sexual immorality was rampant and had wrecked the culture of the city. And so when Paul arrives, he finds 12 people who say, but we are devoted, we are committed to Jesus and what Jesus wants to be in us and who he wants to be through us. And it's interesting that in this dark, difficult, dysfunctional culture, the church actually began to grow. As their eyes were open to who Jesus was, they began to push back the darkness. They began to make impact. They began to do things that people thought was bizarre. In the, in the culture of the Roman Empire that was pushing everything down, that was um, controlling everything, followers of Jesus were beginning to make an impact that wouldn't just stay in the city of Ephesus, but it would ultimately impact all of Asia. What began to happen there didn't stay there. Church historians will say that this group of Jesus followers, over the years, they began to grow in boldness and began to grow in numbers, so much so that they had to begin to meet in a 24,000-seat theater, people coming together in love with God and loving each other, making a difference in the world. God did some crazy things, and it's interesting as you go back and you read through the early church and things that were happening, their prayers were different. It changes the way we pray. We're not praying for God to bless us. We're not praying for God to give us more. What we're praying for is, God, give me boldness to stand in the darkness and to push back the darkness and to be who you've called me to be because we understand who he is and we understand who he is for me and what he wants to do through me. Now, what's interesting about this letter is this letter is not necessary for the church at Ephesus anymore. But I believe that this prayer is critical for community of faith right now. Because we've been called with a purpose. We've been called to respond to who Jesus is. For us personally, but what he wants to do through us corporately. You know, a city begins to change when it sees the people of Jesus know who Jesus is. I believe an entire nation begins to change when it begins to see the people of Jesus know whose they are in Jesus. So my question for us today is, do you know him? Have your eyes been opened to who he is and who he wants to be in your life? Because the reality of that is the response shows, reveals what I know and what I believe. It's important. So what we've done is we've thought through several ways to think about a response. We know Jesus, because I know Jesus, I believe in who he is, I believe that he is for me, I believe that he's real in my life, therefore it demands a response. And so even with what we've heard this morning, as we begin to process and understand, it's demanding a response in our life. And so we've come up with some corporate ways for us to respond as a church to what we know, to what we've experienced, to what we understand about Jesus. And I want to walk you through several of those as we close this time together this morning. The first thing is simply this, and this is a personal, individual thing that we all will celebrate together, but it's this idea of baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is simply an external response 
to an inward commit, commitment we've made because our eyes have been open to who Jesus is. And for some of you, even this morning or over the last few weeks, as we've been in this I Am series, your eyes have been opened. You've recognized a new identity that you have in Christ. And he is calling you to respond. And that first step to respond to who he is in your life is to simply be baptized. And I get the pushback. I hear the pushback. I've had conversations about this. People think, Wes, that's just kind of really bizarre. Why do I need to get into a pool of water and be baptized underneath the water and raised back up? It just doesn't make sense. And I think because it doesn't make sense is why it makes sense. Because people are going to look at you. The world is going to look at you and they're going to think, you're surrendering your life, you're giving your life, you're laying your life down for Jesus, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? And it's beginning to declare to the world, I realize it doesn't make sense, but I believe and I trust that my life is the best life when it's surrendered and laid down to Jesus. And next weekend, we're gonna celebrate baptism in our service. We're gonna close the I Am series with a celebration of baptism, but we're gonna do it a little bit different. We're actually gonna have pools in this room, and at the conclusion of our service together, we're gonna baptize several in this room, and we're gonna celebrate, and we're gonna lose our minds, and we're gonna raise the roof on this place because it's worth celebrating, even if it was just one. And so on your worship guide this morning, you'll see, it says my, it says on the back, it says places to register for information, and you'll see down there about halfway, it says register me for baptism weekend. That's next weekend. And you can check on there, and then you can check which service you want to be a part of. And I know some of the questions are like, well, Wes, I did it when I was a kid, and I don't think it's necessary. And I would say that when I look through scripture, Baptism always took place after someone made a personal decision to follow Jesus for themselves. And when you were baptized as a child, that was a really important day. It was a special, significant day in your life and especially for your parents. And I believe that what happens when we decide for ourselves to step into that relationship with Jesus and to be baptized for ourselves, what we're doing is we're seeing the prayers that your parents prayed on that day years ago actually be answered because you have committed yourself to follow Jesus just like your parents had committed years and years and years ago. People say, well, Wes, I'm afraid of the water. That's a real thing. But I can give you confidence, we've never lost anybody. There's no piranhas in the water, and it's even warm. So don't let any of those things keep you from taking the step that God is calling you to take as he helps you recognize who he is and who he wants to be in your life. The next thing that I want us to really rally around and think about is just this idea of generosity. Next weekend, we're gonna be taking the above and beyond Christmas offering. And in your worship guide this morning, it probably felt like you were carrying a load of laundry from the dryer to the couch and trying to keep all the things together because there's a lot of information in there. But in there, you will find an envelope for the above and beyond offering and you'll also find a card. This is for next weekend. And we're gonna celebrate through generosity. You'll also see another envelope in there. That's just simply for your regular giving. But next weekend's offering is this opportunity to give above and beyond what we've ever given. Why? Because of who Jesus is and what he's done in our life. And listen, I'm not asking you to give because the church needs it. And I would even say, if you think the church just, is just after your money, keep it or give it to another church. But I don't think that we give out of generosity because the church needs our money. What God did is he set up a system. He set up an effort to help us step into something in order to keep the corruption of our hearts being decayed by our love for money. And so he helps us do that through this thing called generosity. And what he does is when he begins to take what we bring him, he begins to show off with it. He begins to do miracles with it. Life change begins to take place because of your obedience to step in to generosity. Let me read you a story about a girl named Grace. 
here at Community of Faith. You know, we talk a lot about all the incredible, amazing things we do all around the world, but God is also doing some incredible things through our student and our kids' ministries here on our campus every single week. Listen to this story about Grace. She said, so before I had Jesus in my life, it was hard. I was diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety, and some days I didn't have the will to get out of bed. It got so bad that I actually thought that killing myself was the only option. I was alone and scared. I didn't know how to deal with my life and all of the chaos in it. When I was younger, my parents got divorced. My father, out of anger and frustration, would throw things around the house and scream. It was chaotic. Due to my family being mostly atheist, I also went down that path. I didn't believe in God, and I lived a horrible life because of it. The day I realized I needed Jesus was the day I realized I couldn't deal with this all by myself. I needed someone behind my back. So one day I walked my small self to the check-in station for COF students on a Wednesday night. I'll never forget that it was National Waffle Day, and Suze was so excited for it. When I walked into the church, I felt a rush of calmness, and I felt safe. I felt welcome. Over time, I started feeling comfortable at church, but I still had chaos in my life. My depression got worse, and I thought no one wanted me on this earth. But one day in church, I was told God wanted me. Jesus actually wanted a relationship with me. I decided to make Jesus the boss of my life. That's all that mattered, and I got baptized. But then something happened. My mom got very sick, and I didn't see her often. I blamed God for it, and I strayed from the church. I had suicidal thoughts again. My brother was diagnosed with clinical depression. I found out he was going to kill himself. I blamed God again. My grandparents got divorced. I blamed God for it. So I made a plan to kill myself. That's when I realized I strayed so far. So I went to middle school camp this past summer and I met a group of people that have changed my life. I opened up my life, I opened up about my life and allowed Jesus to take control of my life again. I felt alive and safe and okay. Because of Jesus, I was able to knock down my wall of being the quiet girl and begin to open up about my life more. Since church camp, I have been the happiest I have ever been. Jesus truly saved my life. Without him, I don't believe I'd be alive today. Recently, I had to deal with some incredible pain when my friend Elijah passed away. But this time, I went to Jesus with that pain and not to my thoughts. Yes, I felt pain, I felt anger, and I was suffering. But this time, I was not alone. I no longer feel alone. Middle school camp allowed me to make friends that I can talk to and discuss with my issues with. They genuinely love me. Jesus has saved my life. So if Jesus saved my life, what can he do for you? An incredible story from a middle school student who just stepped into her freshman year of high school. Why? Because the eyes of her heart has been opened to see who Jesus is and who he wants to be for her. And that happened through our student ministry. It happened through volunteers. It happened through your generosity. And I don't tell you that this morning to manipulate you to give out of obligation. I tell you that story this morning so that we can celebrate what God has done through your generosity. He's making a difference in the lives of not just Grace, but in hundreds, if not thousands of people through community of faith. What's interesting is that we can give of our money and think that that's all generosity is, but generosity is also the giving of our time. And I know because I've watched and I've observed Grace's life and I've seen volunteer after volunteer after volunteer giving their time every single week to invest in her life specifically, but not just in her life, in the lives of so many others. What's crazy is now Grace has stepped in to this idea of being generous with her time, and she's volunteering in our kids' ministry to make an impact on the lives of those coming up behind her. It's this awesome cycle that God begins to stir in motion when we understand who he is. 
And I tell you that this morning because I believe that God is also calling us to step in to be generous with our time. And we have a specific way for you to do that as we step into this Christmas season. As we look forward to what God is going to do during our Christmas Eve services, we're inviting you because we need you, but because I believe you also need the opportunity to be the all God has called you to be and all that he wants us to be as a church, to volunteer for the Christmas Eve services. So you'll see on the same response sheet a place to sign up. And I encourage you, I push you, I'm nudging you this morning to take a step into that. Maybe you've never volunteered and you think, man, I don't know anything about this whole Jesus thing. I'm just not sure if that's right. You don't have to know anything about Jesus. What's interesting is as we step in to serve with Jesus, oftentimes that's when he shows us the greatest things about himself. And so we're inviting you to step in and help us make a difference in our city this Christmas season by volunteering for one of these Christmas Eve services. Maybe it's a new family tradition. Instead of receiving the entire Christmas Eve, and it's a time to give back of your time, not just your money. And then the last thing is this. In your program, you received a Christmas invite card. This Christmas, we are looking forward with great anticipation, with great hope for what God is going to do through our Christmas Eve services. And every single year, we're always evaluating, we're always trying to be the best stewards of what you've given with your generosity, and we decided to go a different direction from the yard signs we've done in the past. And some of you are a little salty about that because you love the yard signs. It's like, Wes, why are you wrecking my Christmas tradition? Everybody needs to know where I go to church at Christmas time. And I get the value of that, but we begin to think, is that the best return for what we're putting into it? And so we decided instead to create some invite cards. And all this is is a simple personal invitation for you to use to invite those you're connected with to be a part of the service. Because if you look around, there's room. Five services. Imagine five services, this room packed out. That's 15, 16, 17,000 people on our campus. And it's not about the number to me, because every number has a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God. God wants to flip the script of thousands this Christmas, but he wants to use you as the catalyst for that by simply making an invitation. So I'm nudging you again to step into this, to be obedient, to respond by extending an invitation to your neighbors, to the people down the street, to the people on the sports teams, to the people that you're connected with. And then let's pray like crazy, expecting him to show up and show off in this Christmas season in our church and through our church. And so at this time, before I pray, if you'll take those offering buckets you'll find at the end of your row. If you find that, you're responsible for getting that train going and passing that down. Drop your response sheets, drop your offerings in there. And then I want us to pray. With incredible trust and incredible confidence in what God wants to do this week for us and through us. And so once you pass that bucket, if you'll just close your eyes. And I just want us to consider where this prayer lands for us. You see, it's not a weekend worship experience that helps us see who Jesus is. Paul didn't go around with this urgency to create a worship production. He simply prayed. The power is in the prayer. The worship services are all about the celebration because of what we've experienced in Jesus. But prayer is what opens our eyes to see who he is and who he wants to be. And so I think it's radically important that if we don't do anything else this morning, we pray that he would open our eyes.